really came into play um, a couple of months later when I was there's like a family reunion and my parents are separated so it can always be a little bit stressful anxious you know bringing up some of those old emotions and so I was having like really bad anxiety one day and normally I just have to wait it out like it takes the whole day um, but this time I sort of reflected back and remembered on this sort of experience and remembered sort of the neural pathway that it created through that and I like focused on that and focused on being back in that situation and for the first time ever uh, really bad anxiety just went to nothing. Hey friends, welcome to this week's episode of The Human Podcast. This is your host, Jeffrey Wu. In past episodes, we've touched upon the topics of psychedelics and their potential as therapeutics for indications like PTSD. I personally feel like this area of discussion has started to move from the niche, the hippie, and the outskirts into the mainstream in recent months, with people like writer Michael Pollan and other writers opening up the conversation around the potential use of psychedelics for therapeutic cases. One interesting psychedelic is ayahuasca, a South American tea that contains the chemical DMT. And this week, we have on Jesse Gould and Yuri Blokin, the leaders behind Heroic Hearts Project, a foundation for veterans to help them learn about and access psychedelic therapy. Jesse is a former Army Airborne Ranger with three combat deployments with a finance background. And Yuri is the first employee of the popular messenger app Kick with a background in computer engineering and mathematical physics. These two gentlemen, as you can tell, come from very different backgrounds, but were brought together with their own experiences with ayahuasca and the mission of changing the culture and dialogue around the value of psychedelics. Hope you guys enjoy the conversation and the show and learn something new. Let's get right into it. So this is our first triple header. So we got two guests on here today, Jesse and Yuri. Good to have you guys on. Great to be nice here. Nice to meet you. Awesome. So as you know, our audience, uh, very interested in human performance and cognition. Brain is one of the, it, the leading attribute of what makes humans interesting among other animals. So a lot of interest in psychoactive substances uh, on the nootropic side, but also on the psychoactive side. Um, and it seems like there's been an uptick of interest, not just because people want to get high and, and do recreational drugs, but it looks like the data and science behind why these are useful and potentially have therapeutic value, if not nootropic value, is really coming to light. So curious to hear about your backgrounds and how you guys got interested in the psychedelic space. My personal background as related to this topic is that for more than a decade, I've been suffering from a severe clinical depression and I no psychotherapy or medications was really helping me. And the only breakthroughs I've had in, during my student years was when I was experimenting with psilocybin. So that was a bit of a hint. And then five years later, after my student days, I was kind of again battling with depression. Nothing was helping. And I came across a friend uh, who mentioned that he was in Peru trying Aya. And that was back when Aya was still kind of not that kind of commonly mentioned. And I was like, okay, what's Aya? And he's like, that's very potent psychedelic. And I already was intrigued to push this method further. And uh, that's how I came across uh, uh, Maria, who was apprenticing. She is a Toronto woman who was living in the Amazon jungle at that point and uh, studying to become an ayahuasquera, a practitioner of ayahuasca under a traditional shaman. And so I came to her retreat. And uh, it's like one of those cliche remarks about ayahuasca, 10,000 hours of therapy in one night. It was kind of like that. Like it's not, it was not exaggeration. And I came back 
like again, it's a cliche thing to say, but it changed my life in that trip. Since then, I kind of became deeply interested in trying to understand it on a more rigorous and scientific, but also cultural basis. And since then, I was coming back to Peru every year and studying with traditional teachers and trying all the other methods beyond ayahuasca, working with different plant medicines, but also being involved in the community and uh, like uh, with organizations like ICERs and Heroic Hearts. And at this point, I'm deeply interested in the topic of globalization of ayahuasca, basically how now that the secret is out of the box, what's going to happen next? What's the safe way that ayahuasca will enter a global narrative without either damaging the existing ecosystem or where it's coming from in the Amazon or without recreating the scenario of the 60s when the reckless use of psychedelics ruined it all for all of us. There was no research for 50 years. So that's why I'm working with Jesse and I'm very fascinated with the work he started on the veteran front. Yeah, and your background comes from a software engineer perspective. I studied mathematical physics in okay. the University of Waterloo, and uh, I joined a tech startup right out of school, and since then I was kind of in the tech scene. Very cool. But, uh, and then yeah. Jesse has a very different background. I know you come from a military background. Can you uh, expand upon your story and how you got interested in psychedelics and now part of Heroic Hearts, a, a nonprofit, bring uh, some of the science and data broadly. Yeah, of course. Actually, I come from more of a finance background. Okay. Graduated with a degree in economics, worked in investment banking in New York for a little bit. Hmm. Shortly after that, decided it was always kind of something I wanted to do in the back of my brain. So while I was young, decided to join the Army, became an Army Ranger. So I was an Army Ranger for about four and a half years. Did three deployments over to Afghanistan. And then after that, when I came out, I went back into finance. So I was in corporate finance, but something just didn't feel right. One, I just wasn't challenged or simulated, but there's also, I didn't have sort of the stereotypical Hollywood PTSD that you would assume, which is kind of the problem because a lot of people are like, there's some something wrong with me, but it's not like what I see in Hollywood. It's not like this crazy veteran or whatever. And I didn't really experience too many traumatic things. That's kind of pretty standard deployments. But like I said, there's just something felt wrong. And me personally, I was never into psychedelics. I was never into drugs in general. But I was just in that feeling where I just I was stuck and couldn't figure it out. Had heard about ayahuasca just through the grapevine, you know, as it's getting more popular. And at first I wasn't interested, but it was kind of the more I read about it, the more I looked into it, the more it kind of intrigued me and separated itself from sort of the recreational drug, which, you know, I wasn't interested in. So I just kind of took that leap of faith and signed up to a retreat in Peru. And then when I went to Peru, the first few ceremonies really just kicked my ass. Like it was a very hard physical sort of experience, but that also gave me a respect for it, especially coming from, you know, that military background, you kind of want that challenge. And that's exactly what I needed. And it just kind of gave me respect. And I saw things my own, besides for the military aspect, I've struggled with bad anxiety going on into depression for most of my life. So just through my own journey through that, you know, I've come to know sort of how my brain works and how it reacts to certain things. And so that gave me an appreciation for what ayahuasca was doing for my brain. And then now I've gone to two retreats. This was just a little bit more than a year ago. And just the effects from them have been pretty amazing. 
Looking back, I believe I had more of a TBI sort of symptoms, uh, traumatic brain injury, because I dealt a lot with mortars. And that tends to have similar sort of thing, leads to depression, can lead to anxiety, lead to a lot of similar sort of symptoms of PTSD. And just from what I notice in my personality and feel in my own brain, it really feels like it balanced um, certain hormone levels, just the way I react to things before certain stimulus would cause social anxiety or those sort of things. And those are just completely eliminated. Yeah. And so almost immediately afterwards, I did research, looked that there was scientific basis for it, looked that there had been previous attempts to use it for PTSD. I kind of brought the idea up with a lot of guys I served with and they're all about it. So I started the foundation and I was traveling, living in Colombia and just sort of randomly ran into Yuri, who had a, a shirt with a ayahuasca defense fund logo on it. And so I just kind of asked him about it and he quickly joined on because he was interested in sort of the veteran cause. And since then, we've just been trying to build it. So on the two sides, connecting veterans, just showing them that there is other options because a lot of them come out of the VA pretty hopeless or just with a handful of pills. Like I've known people that have 15 different prescriptions which is ridiculous. And they just come out of that situation with no other option. And so one, we're just trying to say, hey, this we're not trying to encourage it. This might be for you. You have to look into it, figure it out for yourself. If it is something you're interested in, then we'll connect you to places that can do it in a responsible, safe fashion. And we can provide you with therapy and guidance and all that kind of stuff. And then two, this sort of, besides the one-on-one veterans connection, we are just trying to promote the research into these things in general. Like you said, it seems to be opening up. Research has been limited, like Yuri mentioned, for over 50 years. A lot of that is really sort of a political control aspect. And it kind of is similar sort of to the communist scare where any doctor, any psychologist that even mentioned psychedelics was risking getting you know, completely blackballed. So it's just been like pretty much quiet. There's been no research, even though early indications even showed that it had potential. And so we're just trying to promote that not only for the therapeutic aspects, but just the amount of knowledge that it can provide us for the brain is very intriguing. Not to go on too long, but just that's how originally we learned about serotonin and serotonin receptors was through research of LSD. So I do believe that the future research just by opening up the studies of these can be tremendously beneficial. Yeah, perhaps as a jumping off point, it's interesting to see how your different backgrounds come together behind this project. And a very noble project, I've been getting more involved with veteran causes or helping transitioning veterans go into civilian life. And, you know, our our soldiers are serving, uh, you know, doing some of the riskiest things to defend our freedoms and it seems to be a bit of a shame that these healthy men and women are coming out somewhat broken i mean perhaps one way to expand the conversation here is giving a landscape of of the status quo and i think perhaps discuss why we think that the timing is now from the way i see it it seems like the existing status quo with ssris that you were mentioning antidepressants like xanax don't seem to be working in the sense that Americans in general are more uh, medicated than ever, yet happiness and depression and the side effects of such drugs are worse than ever. You see 
I don't want to bring in, you know, school shootings and all of that, but there seems to be some correlation between mental issues and uh, individuals going out there and doing crazy things. And the science, it seems to be that in the last couple of years, there are starting to be clinical trials done on what originally were scheduled controlled substances like MDMA or ketamine and becoming actually sanctioned clinical trials. Those seem to be the broad drivers from my vantage point. And then I would say there's a lot of just community N equals one anecdotes where people are seeing really good results. And I think a lot of these stories and anecdotes are being driven by podcasts like these, these conversations or online communities where people are talking about it. I know you guys had a viral Reddit AMA that was at the top of the front page, you know, a few weeks back. If you could just list out the historical trends that are backing why the timing is now, what would you say are the the big drivers here? Like I mentioned before, I really believe that the original sort of banning was a lot to do with messaging and sort of political control. There's even, if you look into it, there's tape of Nixon and some of his people actually stating like a lot of the drug policies were used to either control the black population with marijuana or control the hippie population with psychedelics. And so they really did start pushing this war on drugs in terms of a control thing. And the government's very good at messaging. And so then you get somebody who like a sort of outlaw like Timothy Leary and it just makes everybody afraid. You know, it's, it just adds to the bad aspect. You just get that one bad person that does it. And then, you know, the, the messaging people can just jump on that. I think just timing, we're in like a new generation. So, you know, my parents still have that huge attachment to the hippie generation. And so when they think of psychedelics, they think of a lot of stuff of society they don't like. You know, the new generation doesn't necessarily have that connection with the internet. We're a little bit more open to information. And that's exactly kind of what Heroic Hearts is trying to do on one side, is we're really trying to control the messaging game. We do believe this is a veteran issue, and we want more veterans to take it as their issue. Whether or not they use psychedelics themselves directly, it can really help, you know, their friends or brothers. It's the same with marijuana. If it was just an aspect of pure science, marijuana or CBD oil would have been legal or I'm scheduled to at least long ago. If it was just a matter of like fact, nobody can deny that marijuana has some sort of medicinal value, but yet it's at a schedule one rating, which means no medicinal value and highly addictive. Which which is very strange. You look at the actual side effect profiles, things like ADHD therapeutics, like basically which are proprietary amphetamine salts, basically the legalized version of speeds is a prescription drug, an RX drug where, yeah, if you look at the safety profile of something like MDMA, LSD, or psilocybin, or as you're saying, marijuana, they seem to be actually, if you look at just the straight science, very low in terms of addictive potential and side effect profile. I think one anecdote I'd like to say is that if we're just aliens looking at substances that have high risk for addiction and high risk for hurting people, alcohol, ethanol is at the top of the list, right? I mean, I think drunk driving is one of the main killers of young people, which is caused by consumption of alcohol. Smoking kills a lot of people. Yet those are legal. And some of these other very low side effect potential compounds are illegal. So it seems very arbitrary to me. And I think it goes back to some sense of political or cultural control in in some sense. And I would also... Go ahead. I would also add here that uh, 
Like the other huge factor now is uh, the network effects of truth over the internet. Because before, maybe we all had li- this little social circle and we would have access, say, in 70s, 80s, 90s. There'd be one friend who tried to ask it and he would be vouching for it. But then it's like, oh, if he's just being weird. Right. Now you have millions of these friends going on YouTube and writing trip reports. And once you build up a body of these reports, then there'll be more and more conventional crowds starting to kind of, okay, I got to give it a shot. Nothing else helped me. And then more and more conventional people start to snowball in. And now we have, we are where we are now with New Yorker posting like 10 page profile on psilocybin and John Hopkins doing research. It's just the truth doesn't need any propaganda machine. It's eventually it will snowball itself into life. Yeah. That's what's happening now. And it's like you're saying in terms of if you take that like outside alien perspective of, and this goes back to the scheduling. If for people that don't know, Marijuana, psychedelics are all Schedule 1, and that means it's heavily controlled by the FDA. It's nearly impossible to study it just because of the costs involved, getting the permits, certain sites, having people manufacture these drugs. MAPS has spent millions of dollars just getting the MDMA where it is, so it's it's extremely preventative. To get it to Schedule 2 would open it up to universities doing it, open it up to a lot more funding. And if you're looking at it from this outside perspective, why would you limit the research on these things? Even these are scientists testing it. Nothing could be more safe than that aspect. And if there's even the slight potential, everybody should be for this research. Like uh, th- That's the hardest p- part of why wouldn't you just open up the research? You might still be against drugs, but let's learn as much as we can about them. Yeah. And also another crucial uh, player in where we are now is uh, what Jesse mentioned, the work of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, and Rick Dublin. He was doing this, he was pushing this cause since 1986. And uh, during the dark ages, so during the 90s, 80s, where nobody else was really rooting for this work, like he was the one pushing scientific research, and that's why we are where we are now. I think your approach is smart. I think that coming with the veterans advocacy angle is is a potent angle because I think for better or for worse, I would say that the military is an esteemed institution in the United States. And I think if we can help this community in any way, they're almost unimpeachable, right? So it's like not just, you know, hippies wanting to expand their minds. No, let's start with the therapeutic use case on a population that is very threatened and endangered. And then as that develops safety and momentum, we could open up and liberalize that area. One question I wanted to ask is, it seems that your focus is on ayahuasca, which is active ingredient DMT. Is that just the primary focus on that one specific compound or one specific ceremony? Or are you guys pushing psychedelics as a whole? How do you look at the different uh, psychoactive substances out there and how do you prioritize? We're definitely for the research of all of them. Ayahuasca... One, it's just we're a new foundation, and so it's better to just focus on one thing, have our, you know, have like a very specific focus. But ayahuasca in the psychedelic community is very much known as like one of the more powerful ones, one of the more therapeutic ones. And there is this whole ceremony tradition that I think can speak to the military. It really has that hero's sort of journey. The way we connect veterans to it, we send them to traditional retreats. They go into what they call a maloka, which is a ceremonial hut. They drink the ayahuasca. You go into you know, the psychedelic state. You have the shaman singing songs. And you, as like a warrior, you have to go in and fight your own demons. And so it really has that. And then just sort of the other aspect of it's relatively unknown. 
So there's a lot of baggage around, for instance, marijuana, you know, like people already have their opinion on that, but even psilocybin, those sort of things. And the other issue is they can be used recreationally. There's nobody that's going to go to a concert and take a cup of ayahuasca. It's just when you're in it, there's no mistaking that you're there to do work when you're in that trance. I don't have a personal experience with ayahuasca or DMT. Can you, and, for, and also for the listeners who might not have that experience, can you describe as best as you can? Obviously, I presume it's hard to articulate into English words that experience, but can you provide an overview of, of this ceremony and some of the subjective experiences? Well, like uh, it uh, expresses uh, itself, the experience ex- is expressed on every single kind of sensory dimension. So audio, visual, physical, and depending on the person, it could express more physically or more visually. Some people can have no visions at all, but like violent body shakes. But for some people, it's traveling to other worlds and seeing things that are unfathomable, unfathomable yet utterly realistic. Uh, so definitely there's no single experience and for the same person it could be a different experience every single time you drink it. There is no pattern. But what helps with the experience is that there is a certain pattern in how these ceremonies are conducted. There is an opening part, there is the middle part, there is the closing part. And usually the whole goal of a ceremony is to cleanse, to cleanse your past psychological, physical, emotional baggage. The cleansing could be sometimes in the form of vomiting that's the most commonly known expression from in terms of purging. But the purging can come in the form of crying, singing, yelling. It could be shaking. It could be like it really whatever. Or oh, yawning actually one of the funky ones. But uh, vomiting is really one of the most common ones. Yeah, I mean, just in terms of just sort of the rough overview, if you go to a retreat, generally retreats are about a week long. You can have them longer. And you'll participate in about three or four ceremonies. And they'll generally happen at night. And so you go into, they prepare you, they talk to you, you talk to the shaman. You go in with like some sort of intention, like, hey, I'd like to address my anxiety or my depression or I feel stuck. You'll go in one by one. Everybody will be sitting in this hut in a circle. One by one, people will go up, take a drink of the ayahuasca, which has a very almost a very thick consistency and it's not the best tasting drink uh, you'll have. Generally within 30 minutes, the majority of people will purge or vomit. Mm-hmm. And that's about when the experience and get, starts going, you'll start seeing sort of the stereotypical or the traditional like uh, psychedelic sort of patterns, colors, dancing around. And the whole trip will generally last about four hours. And that's a very typical, like Yuri said, it'll hit everybody in a very unique way. Every time you take it, it'll hit you in a u- unique way. And that's uh, that's kind of what we tell people. And that's sort of the advantage too, is that sometimes, especially for people with PTSD, it has sort of an exposure therapy aspect. People can go into there and they can revisit past traumas. A lot of people get caught in loops. So they just can't, you know, a friend died in their arms, they can't get past that. Or they were sexually assaulted as a kid. You know, they just keep replaying the story. Ayahuasca, in terms of the exposure, helps them go. It'll still be hard, but it almost it, there's a protective layer to it. You're not as emotionally involved, and so a lot of people can move on from that. And then outside of that, some people don't necessarily have the hallucinations, but they have shown in early scientific studies that there are physiological effects on the brain. So it's been shown 
some studies to um, increase serotonin receptors, which is a big thing for people with depression because uh, they're not taking in a lot of serotonin. So it kind of balances that out. Right, the satisfaction uh, neurotransmitter as opposed right, to dopamine, exactly. which is the pleasure neurotransmitter, which is yeah, more anyway. spiky. And the interesting thing is it grows new receptor sites, which is actually very uncommon. Like That's not how SSRIs work, which right. they just uh, increase the uh, amount of uh, serotonin. While here, you become more sensitive to serotonin, which is kind of normalizing your sensitivity to it after it was inhibited. Yeah, SSRI stands for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors, right? So you're basically blocking the breakdown of serotonin, yeah. which may or may not be a good thing, but it sounds like if yeah. you are taking a psychedelic, you increase the number of receptors that can yeah. absorb serotonin, which is a very different mechanism. Right? And that's one of the more interesting things about this is the only go-to accepted therapy is if talk therapy is not helping you, are antidepressants, are anti-anxieties, but they do nothing to heal. They do nothing to make you better. So it's pretty much like you have to be on these antidepressants for the rest of your life. And so like a lot of veterans come out and what they do is they almost null your personality. So a lot of them come out a shell themselves and it causes marital issues. It causes issues with their kids. Where, and the interesting thing is with this and other psychedelics is that it's shown to actually permanently heal. And there's like neurogenesis too, which, and just in terms of pathways in the brain, it increases the plasticity. So if you're caught in some sort of um, habit, some sort of pattern in your life, it can help you break through that and regain healthy habits, which is, and like I said, there's that healing aspect, which nothing else except for talk therapy has ever been able to show. Yeah, it's interesting from a mechanistic argument perspective. You can think of something like caffeine, which is an adenosine blocker. Adenosine is, an, is a neurotransmitter that the message is tiredness and caffeine blocks your receptors of actually receiving adenosine. So it's like basically telling someone, you can make an analogy with SSRIs. You're kind of blocking the uptake of tiredness, but you're not solving tiredness. Same thing with SSRIs, you're blocking the notion of breaking down serotonin, but you're not healing the receptors. You don't you know, rebuild someone out of tiredness yeah. by telling them to take a lot of more caffeine. You tell them to actually sleep and, and, and reduce adenosine, right? And I think there's a similar analogy, obviously different pathways, different mechanisms, but from that very basic engineering thinking, it seems to be a lot more deep of a solution than just like sort of a, a proximal thing that's easy to manipulate. And uh, as a, like something that you learn as you like drink ayahuasca more often, that the kind of the root of all issues in one's life often arise from some kind of blockage where when you ignore some truth of your being, of your life, whatever that is, physical or like emotional. And ayahuasca for it's like that uh yeah, I always often compare ayahuasca to this coach that kind of uh it's it's sadistic, but it wishes you the best. <laughs> Cause like it really makes you work so hard like you've never worked, but in the end you feel victorious because you actually you face so much of what you would never have faced on your own. Yeah. So I'm going to bring in an audience question here, and this is perhaps more of a personal subjective experience. Ziggy81 asks, curious to hear both of your stories here, what has been your personal favorite trip or a breakthrough trip for you guys personally? Um, I Mine are generally pretty difficult just because I have controls a big aspect for me 
And if you don't see control, it will eventually wear you down until you just let it take you sort of thing, which is a hard thing to explain unless you've actually experienced it. But it's it's like if you're trying to hold on to your sake of reality and all that, then it, it will eventually just wear you down. So um, is this the ego death kind of? Uh, no, that, that for me, it's different. Okay. This is just more of, I feel weird and something's going on. I'm getting dizzy and just kind of just chilling out. Just feel like, okay, the, the, you know, everything's fine. Just breathing and all that sort of stuff. For me, um, the second time I went to the tree, each one, it, it's hard to say because a lot of times you don't necessarily feel the effects until like months down the line, you'll be in this situation where you're just like, whoa, like I normally feel anxious in this situation, but I don't have that stimulus. But And then you're, you're almost like teaching yourself how to not react, how you have your whole life without the anxiety. So it's kind of weird. But one, one I had was I was just in this room. Vomiting is a very easy response for me, uh, especially under ayahuasca. Everybody vomits, but for me, it's almost like a control aspect. When it starts getting too intense, then... So sometimes I'll like purge 10 times throughout it, which is exhausting, painful, all this sort of thing. And it dates back when I was anxious as a kid, vomiting was always sort of my response. And so one of the trips, I was just already having a bad time, already vomited a few times, and was just surrounded in a room of myself. And they're all just kind of like laying back on the couch, just kind of looking at me, just like, are you done yet? Have you had enough? You know, like you can just hang out here with us. You don't have to keep doing this. And it almost taught me, like I could almost feel the pathway in my brain to get around that anxiety, which is also a very hard thing to understand. But it really came into play a couple of months later when I was, there's like a family reunion and my parents are separated. So it can always be a little bit stressful, anxious, you know, bringing up some of those old emotions. And so I was having like really bad anxiety one day. And normally I just have to wait it out like it takes the whole day. But this time I sort of reflected back and remembered on this sort of experience and remembered sort of the neural pathway that it created through that. And I like focused on that and focused on being back in that situation. And for the first time ever, really bad anxiety just went to nothing. Like it just went away. And I still had to like be cautious the rest of the day, but it was the first time I had ever had that much control over really severe anxiety. Very cool. Yuri, do you have a you have your own personal experience to share? Um, there are so many of them. Uh, it's like one of the big ones for me was when I first came over to Peru to do a retreat, traditional retreat. I was uh, coming over as this kind of extremely sarcastic, uh, skeptical mathematician who kind of wouldn't like take seriously all the traditional aspects of the ceremony and i would i would like now i remember i think it was embarrassment i would almost like yeah sure i'll tolerate this but just give me the cup and i'll deal with the rest i was really arrogant and i was extremely humbled by the extreme sophistication and nuance of the ceremonial process and how much practice and years and years and liters of ayahuasca go into training somebody to become a ceremonial leader. And uh, I think that was a shock to me to realize that uh, these uh, schools of thought, they are not mutually exclusive at all. They complement each other. And there is a big part of reality, experiential reality, that it cannot yet be proven scientifically, but it's there. It's there to be experienced. And uh, I felt pity for my past self and for my other friends who would still be thinking in that kind of more limited way where if something cannot be 
absolutely deterministically proven, then you cannot use it. You cannot touch it because it's uh, your rationality will be at risk. And this insecurity about one's rationality, I think it's a huge limiting factor in our society right now. Because one's rationality cannot be threatened by experience. It can only be boldened and expanded because experience is the ultimate truth. And that was kind of the big learning for me that these experiential, unprovable things are there to teach us. And even if I cannot prove something, I will still trust it if it's true. It's true. It doesn't have to be proven with a formula. Yeah, no, I think it's something that I've been thinking about a lot in the sense of spirituality. I don't necessarily want to bring in like religious experiences, but it seems to be something that is convergent between people that have very serious meditation practices or religious revelation or people on psychedelic experiences. They report this similar transcendent subjective experience is not necessarily quantitative. And there, you know, is some hypotheses that these are sort of related and these are just different mechanisms to tap that same transcendent feeling. I mean, we can talk a little bit about that, but before talking about that, I actually want to ask an audience question from Jessica, basically asking, how do you balance the science and the potentially the randomized controlled trials with something like ayahuasca and the clinical benefits for PTSD or TBI with the tradition? Obviously, it sounds like from your perspective, the tradition is an important part of the compound itself. How do you guys balance that? Can you imagine that you would have DMT or ayahuasca like a prescription drug that you just pick up at Walgreens or a CVS? Or is the practice, the tradition, the ceremony an important part of it? I'm actually curious to hear how you guys think about that. The whole psychotherapy is definitely going to have to go through growing pains in terms of this. If they're going to, and I think Yuri and I both believe that it needs to, like we believe Part of it's that story you tell yourself and putting, like they say with psychedelics, set and setting are very important and you can't necessarily take that away. Even when people do it recreationally, a lot of people who try shrooms will tell you, you know, like if you're already in an anxious state or you're in an uncomfortable spot, it's going to be a bad trip. But there will be growing pains just because traditional medicine is very reductionist to where it needs to identify the exact sort of molecule, the exact chemical that's working, see where it does. Whereas psychotherapy with your brain, it's such a complex thing. And just biology itself, the different plant components, the different molecules interacting with each other, we're not, even though we might think we are, we're not sophisticated enough to understand the different ways they interact with each other and then they interact with our brain. And if you just look at any sort of traditional culture, one, they're smaller, but if people have mental issues, it's the tribe's issue. Everybody gets together together. You know, the shaman helps heal them. Everybody's helping there. They're generally in this open air. All these psychedelics have this connected towards nature sort of aspect. All that is just bringing us back to our sort of natural roots, our um, our community sort of aspect. It's, it's not something that you can just be in an isolated room with a person in a lab coat. Here you go. You're going to get better. Because a lot of it, too, is the psychedelics open the door. You still have to put in the work. And a lot of the work is finding that community, finding your purpose. You know, if a lot of depression is just because you're in a shitty job or you're not eating healthy, you're not exercising, psychedelics can kind of reset your cycle and and make you realize like, oh, hey, I'm getting fat. I'm not eating good. I need to get out there and like open up my life. But you still have to put that in. And it's such an important sort of thing. I think psychotherapy really needs to 
take a step a little bit more into the gray area, be a little bit more allowing as opposed to, oh, you can't prove this beyond a doubt that this part of the ceremony is good. Oh, let's take out this part of the ceremony. That's impossible. I think the step forward, though, is just to balance the old and the Western sort of thing is maybe it's going to be contentious within the community, but possibly do some sort of traditional FDA trials where they reduce the DMT into some sort of controllable thing. That way you can prove at least the DMT is not toxic and it has above a placebo effect and that gives it legitimacy. And then it'll be on the individuals to decide if they want to do it in their traditional sort of, I I think once you give it legitimacy, then that opens the freedom for people to do do the ceremonial practices and then people can kind of find what will work for them. Yeah, I'm curious they're putting in Yuri here because I believe I'm cut from a similar class as you. I'm a computer scientist or an engineer by background. And I would say carry enlightenment values around rationality, science, randomized controlled trials. But there's clearly some value in these subjective experiences. I mean, there's so much anecdotal data that the plural of anecdotes and in some sense is data. So there's clearly some signal here. I'm curious to get your take here. Yeah, sure. It's like I would compare the metaphor would be, again, it's like there is this like beautiful field full of mountains and plants and we have cut the like little square within which we have rulers and we can measure things within that square but then beyond that square we cannot let ourselves step over just because we don't have the right kind of rulers to play with in those areas but they still exist without us like whether we like it or not and uh, i agree with jesse's uh, legal approach and that yes like just because that's how things are done probably some randomized trials would have to be done uh, on the dmt molecule alone just to prove that it's not toxic but i fiercely do not believe that the experience of a ceremony could be reduced into some kind of formula it is an art form to a degree and what's already being done very actively in the community is the symbiotic work of the western medicine and the traditional amazonian medicine where MDs and the clinical psychologists, they prepare people before and they support the integration mm-hmm. after the ayahuasca experiences. And that's really where it's becoming very interesting because that's absent from the tradition, the traditional Amazonian medicine. Why? Because they don't really have a need for that. Let's say ayahuasca is part of their cultural DNA and the tribe is that psychotherapist, is the tribe, the family is doing that integration before and after. In our individualist society, we, st- we have that gap and that's where traditional medicine will, will be really, really good at. And uh, in the future, actually, even now, uh, Joe Tepur, who's an MD from Arizona, and who we, JC and I interviewed uh, during the AMA on Reddit recently. So he has spent 10 years running a retreat center in the Amazon. And every year he was bringing Western medical students into the jungle to see firsthand the potency of the, med- of the uh, ayahuasca medicine, but also to... Uh, deal with situations as they arise and help with integration and preparation. And now he's uh, preparing work and the materials for traditional Western medical students to really tap into that aspect. Additionally, a Temple of the Way of Life is another retreat center that actually has a very robust integration program with clinical psychologists and integration specialists preparing people before and after. I would say it's a bit of a buzzword now, almost integration. If there is one way to describe where the community is, at right now, the Western side of the community. And for the right reason, because even five years ago, I remember there was this pattern where people would start coming for ayahuasca and they have an issue X and they would get rid of X and then one year uh, comes over and they have again X. Uh, They come over, ayahuasca helps remove the issue, but they don't do the integration work. They 
look at it as a magic wand that you just utilize and it takes care of your issues. But no, ayahuasca simply shows you, it gives you the energy and insight to figure your shit out. And if you don't do it after during the integration, it will come back and bite you. Mm. I think Yuri will attest to this as well, just back on what you're saying. So during the ceremony, after you've taken the drink, the shaman sing these songs called Akaros. And these are songs that they learned when they were drinking ayahuasca and the plants taught them these songs. And so they use these songs to sort of guide the ceremonies, guide the spirits and their belief and all that sort of stuff. When you are in the ayahuasca experience, those Akaros are constantly playing and it just adds this whole other dimension to the experience. One, it makes it more intense sometimes to where you're just like, stop, stop singing. This is getting too intense because they'll take pauses in the moment it stops. It's almost like you lost your like guiding star. And then you're just kind of like, where's the songs? And I just don't know how you'd ever be able to quantify that aspect, that mingling of songs. And it's not just they sing the same song. The energy, the inflection, all this stuff changes based on what they're feeling in the room. It's the weirdest thing, how it plays with your individual trip. And it's just something I just don't see how you could possibly separate it or necessarily study it in a traditional Western way. Yeah, and, and like in my case, I was coming into it, like I said, like with the most amount of skepticism possible. And every time ceremony after ceremony, bit by bit, my skepticism was kind of melting away. I just couldn't hold on to it anymore because the truth was so obvious that these ikaros, these songs, they are the remote control to the ceremony. The moment he changes it, everything changes. The moment uh, they stop the ceremony, once there are no songs, the ceremony kind of, there is no visions, you just chill. As an experiment on myself with a friend of mine, we did a small brew ourselves in Canada and we ran a little experiment on ourselves. We're not obviously shamans and we couldn't get anything started. Like we tried to play the Icarus, like we drank, we tried to play it on the recorded versions, but like we had no visions, nothing. And the moment my friend started singing, like she was not, she's not trained. She was just trying to bring out the real personal kind of uh, what you would call energy into this space. And that's when visuals started to come in. That's just a little anecdote that like we couldn't synthetically replicate just by playing the professional Ayahuasquero's songs on our stereo. Interesting. I want to bring another audience question uh, from Yosef. How do you psychologically prepare someone to take ayahuasca? And, and I want to just expand it out. Would you say that there's guidelines? You know, what are risks that you dissuade people or have them do some pre-work before engaging in such a deep experience? To bring in the devil's advocate, what aspects would you, you know, caution people against before engaging in such a practice? Definitely don't read other people's experiences. Like Yuri and I said, everybody's experience is different. And so okay. some people will like read an experience of like fighting dragons or whatever or <laughs> something and they'll be afraid. Yuri, what else do you think? Well, the obvious ones uh, that uh, you should not drink ayahuasca if you are taking SSRIs. You have to consult your physician and kind of be uh, clean from them for at least. I think the re recommended minimum is three months. Jesse, is that the very minimum? If you're on most SSRIs, is you have to be off of them for at least four weeks okay. because the half life for it to get out of your system is about that. You want to just try to strive for five times the half life. Those tend to be, I think, like five, six, seven days. Some drugs like Prozac, you need at least six weeks. So you can't be on those. They don't interact well with the MAO inhibitor, which is part of the ayahuasca compound. 
Yeah, it could be lethal, basically. That's the most dangerous combination, really. Like, SSRIs could be lethal in combination with ayahuasca. And other elements, how would you prepare? There are so many ways. Really, it's just clean living. For some people, it's difficult. I guess for longer you can prepare, the better, the easier the experiences will be. But uh, try to stay away from uh, alcohol, any drugs, and uh, just the heavy food for at least a couple of weeks. Like some people didn't do it for one week, can work as well. Like I try to do at least a couple of weeks. Caffeine as well. Try to stay away from that. Basically anything that is overstimulating. And that's why actually one crucial part that we haven't discussed yet is like how in a traditional context, how would people prepare? Mm -hmm. And they have this crucial notion of what's called a dieta. And dieta have multiple meanings. Like there is a dieta, there is simply a list of restrictions that you would have to follow before and after ayahuasca ceremony. So that's no alcohol, no sex, no drugs, no pork meat, or like some other more exotic meats that are not as relevant in our context. And uh, no spicy or salt. Basically anything that stimulates, anything that uh, brings you very heavily into your body. But also there is another element of healing with a... Ayahuasca is called uh, like plant dieta, where not only you abstain from certain foods, but you prepare for your ceremonies by being in isolation. That's a crucial, crucial experience that uh, uh, helps you calm down and prepare for your ceremony. And traditionally, people would go and live in a small hut in the middle of the jungle. Somebody would bring them basic food once a day, which would be just a little bit of carbs to, and water. And uh, they would just stay in isolation and prepare three, five, seven days before having their ayah. And that's when it really kind of becomes interesting because mm. it really multiplies the effects and depth of your healing. And also, what I found astounding, especially, again, given my extremely skeptical approach initially, like these dietas are often mixed with a specific healing plant. Basically, not only it would be in isolation, but they would give you once a day, they would give you a drink made of a specific plant. And this plant is chosen not randomly. It's chosen based on what you're trying to work with. For some people, it could be dealing with their anger. For some people, it could be they're too, they're too numb to their pains. For some people, it will be some physical issue. Some of it will be emotional. But uh, a practitioner will pick a plant, and you would drink a little bit of that plant. And I was thinking, okay, what it can do really to affect my ceremonies. But it actually changes everything in your ceremony, and you have this kind of very specific tone and type of lessons you kind of receive mm. during that experience. And again... I knew that I was not coming with an expectation of that. I was really waiting for it to not be true because I thought that's really kind of voodoo. At time over time, it has worked that each time they pick a plan for me that without even explaining what kind of effect the human should have. And that later on, I would ask, is this the effect? And it would be that's the effect that we're aiming for. Do you have any examples? Like what effects were you aiming for? And, and what, what? Sure. So basically, at first, I was aiming for being able to kind of basically... Because of my lifelong depression in the past, I had a pretty low self-esteem and uh, I had issues with just standing up for myself, standing my ground and speaking out my truth kind of bluntly. And basically, I was given a plant that is really kind of helping with that kind of energy. And like usually this type of stuff can be manifested psycho-emotionally and the personality level. It could be expressed physically. But basically, I was given a plant called Remocaspia, dieted it in isolation for 10 days. And my ceremonies were like deeply, deeply influenced in what kind of uh, content, what kind of visuals, what kind of lessons and insights were coming to me were deeply relevant to this topic. And it was also like with Aya, it's never theoretical. It's always, it forces you, like Jesse explained how Aya was helping 
him learn how to not be triggered into an anxious state of mind. In my case, it was kind of like forcing me to re-experience these uncomfortable situations where I would have to stand up for myself until I really started doing it, until it clicked and some new networks in my head were activated and like, oh, that's how it's done. That's how it works. Like I was kind of almost keeping in the blind spot some kind of mechanics, psycho-emotional mechanics that were not previously available to me. And just for your followers, if they are interested in doing it, just read about the plan itself. I wouldn't really go into people's personal experience, but then just listen to your gut. That's what I always tell people. Like, don't force yourself. If the time's not right, it tends to like call people. Like, try not getting too mystical, but there's so many people that go to these ayahuasca retreats and I had the same sort of thing. It's just like, all right, this feels right. I'm going to go do it. So just trust your gut. In terms of dangers, if you have like a history of psychosis or even family members that have psychosis, any retreat that is worth its merit will have sort of a medical intake. There's going to be a lot of retreats popping up that just kind of want your money that are more tourist retreats. Generally, the better ones will have you fill out some sort of survey beforehand of what your intentions are, and then they'll prove that. The ones that were that just like, where's your credit card information? Be weary of those. But like I said, if psychosis, because it, it might accelerate those sort of aspects. If you have heart problems, you want to talk to a doctor too, because it really shoots up your cortisol levels, get your heart going. For us, just because there's not a lot of protocol, we're pretty much making this from scratch. We try to avoid veterans that are like too far into it. You know, if they're like actively suicidal or just even have a hard time, like just because there's there's too much risk right now. Without like a proven path, we really can't take that risk. And then also, if you're on SSRIs and stuff like that, you shouldn't just quit it cold turkey. Like I said, you need to be off at four weeks, but that doesn't mean four weeks get off of it and then go. Really, you need to talk to your doctor, do it in a safe sort of way, because what happens when you get off of those is it throws and makes your emotions more of like a roller coaster. So you might feel good for a bit, but then you're likely to get hit hit a bottom. And you know, if you're doing this, you want it to improve yourself. You don't want to put yourself in an unsafe realm. But like I said, just it's really just trust your gut. If read into it, if it's something interesting, keep it in the back of the brain. And generally speaking, there's a calling aspect to it. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that refreshing, balanced approach. I think that's where the 60s and the hippies and the, and the people like Timothy Leary went wrong, right? I think they had the good intentions of sharing something they thought was powerful and potent, but it's not magical Jesus juice that's going to you know, be a, a, a cure-all or a prophylactic for everything. So there's some risks, there's some benefits, and I think you should do your own homework and prepare for an experience like this, which I think is the right approach to not make it too mystical or woo-woo, right? I think that's the danger here, where I see really, really good foundation of science and data, and it's clearly helping people from an anecdotal perspective, which seems to me from a scientist's perspective, there's some signal here. And if there's some signal and the side effect profiles seem pretty low, then it seems worth investigating further, whether in a randomized control perspective to make sure that the safety is reconfirmed below. I mean, I think it sounds like it's been used for thousands of years fairly safely. So I think from that perspective, it's more safe than a lot of the new antidepressants like Prozac or Xanax that's only been really used for the last you know, 30, 40 years, right? And that's another thing to bring up too, is because a lot of people, and this will continue, you, you'll hear in the news this death associated with ayahuasca or this sort of thing. As far as my knowledge directly related to ayahuasca, 
from like any sort of overdose or anything like that, you know, unless they had like a previous medical condition, like I said, like some sort of heart thing. Um, generally speaking, when you hear this sort of news, it's because people don't understand and it involves a ceremony that some places do with ayahuasca. So a lot of the deaths are caused by this tobacco cleansing ceremony where people drink extract of tobacco and that can be very dangerous because it, it uh, overloads some people's systems with nicotine. You have to be careful with what you read in the news as well, because the headline will be like ayahuasca death. From all the cases that I've read, it'll generally be uh, related to something else, or they're going to like some like weird retreat that the guys are trying to get their money, and right. just some shitty like shifty stuff happened, you know. So I mean, just be cautious when you read that sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah. And speaking of the shifty stuff, basically right now with the globalization of ayahuasca and more and more ayahuasca tourism coming into the Amazonian region, there was this negative trend where a lot of people who were never trained to do ayahuasca ceremonies now pretend to be local masters of the trade and they run ceremonies and people are lucky if nothing bad happens, but sometimes bad stuff happens like that. But also even trained ayahuasqueros sometimes get trapped into this kind of criticism when people come over and they expect some crazy visuals and not everybody gets crazy visuals for some it's physical healing that uh, they're getting so some of the i guess less professional shamans what they may do is they would add this plant called toe or datura or it's also called i think jimmy's weed in uh, north america but basically it's an extremely extremely potent dissociative and it basically creates a guarantee that there will be extreme <laughs> visuals okay but it also, it's just too much. Like like this kind of experience, uh, it's not really like therapeutic. Like it, it can be that plant can be used for medicinal purposes, and it's used maybe one in a thousand cases needed. But really, it's done more for a show to impress people seeking hardcore visuals. And it's a vicious cycle where less than savory uh, practitioners meet less than sophisticated seekers, and it's a recipe for disaster. So yeah. That's Definitely avoid Tawana. That's a precaution. <laughs> so just and you know, just do your research. It's it's easy to tell when you go to the websites of individual places what their intentions are. Like I said, if the credit cards, like one of the like the third question that they ask, you might want to avoid it. But some of them are like, fill out the survey. What are your intentions? What do you think of this? What do you think of that? We'll get back to you. Okay, you're approved. Those generally tend to be a little bit more legitimate and more focused on therapy. Yeah, and definitely do not just come over to Iquitos in Peru with the expectation to meet a shaman somewhere on the street because that's how it's what's my destiny. Just do not do that because that's how you get in trouble, either financially at the very least or maybe physically. Yeah, no, I think that's perhaps part of the role that something like Heroic Hearts Project can help with, right? It sounds like you guys are plugged into the community and the shamans and, and the tradition so you guys can help guide people in, in working with masters or practitioners in a safe way. How does our community, how does our listener help? What are the big plans for the rest of 2018, 2019 for you guys? How do people get involved? And is that something you guys can help, you know, help people navigate, right? I presume that the veteran community is your primary demographic that you're looking to serve. How do people get involved? So right now we're a small operation. It's Yuri, I, and another guy. We're always looking for people that want to volunteer their time or help, you know, if they're good at marketing or social media, you know, we're pretty much juggling all these separate things ourselves. So if you feel like you can help, then obviously do that. And, you know, the try and true method is donations. You know, you, I don't want to be out there with my pan, but, you know, every veteran 
it costs money to send them to develop these stories to change sort of the dynamic of this whole story. And that's really what we're trying to do. But we need funding. Otherwise, if people don't really know, they can just go to their website, heroicheartsproject.org. They can write us an email, just like, I don't know, I would really want to help. I don't know what I can do. Or even if they just have questions, I have no problem answering questions of anybody if they're a little bit nervous or whatever, even if they're not a veteran. You know, we're, we're here to sort of make that bridge of a healthy experience, healthy connection. In terms of plans next, I'm talking with another guy. We're trying to make sort of this area, some land. We're trying to develop it into like a farm. And so we have the ability to have veterans go there and hang out for a few months and possibly have low cost housing so they can get back on their feet and sort of work on the land and build sort of vocational skills and then use that as like they can get their mind clear, eat healthy. And then if they're if they're interested in going to ayahuasca, we can send from there and just sort of create this whole more dynamic community. Our real goal is just to create sort of micro communities in, in each spot. So if businesses are willing to sponsor local veterans, that's the biggest sort of aspect. Like we said, it's trying to bring people back to that community sort of travel aspect. You know, if we try to, we send veterans in at least groups of two, that way when they go back. But if we have a local business, like I'm working with a veteran-owned business in Seattle, and they're helping us send two guys at the end of this month, then that way when the guys come back, they're coming back to at least one business in the community with each other that's supporting them. And if we can get more that, things like that, you know, there's five, 10 veterans and some businesses sponsoring it. That's something to go back to. That's something that they can share when they're having anxiety again, having depression again. It's something to fall back on, just rebuilding these sort of communities. Do you have ideas? You know, like I said, just reach out and any help we can get. It's, it's very much appreciated. Like this is a big effort just to change all this and to build the stories and if people are willing to help, then we can find a way. To build on top of what Jesse added, another strategic goal of ours is to build out this understanding and almost a template for how a specific neighborhood almost can uh, raise money there on their own to fund a single veteran from their community because that creates this perfect storm of community being educated by, about ayahuasca. They, them getting together to fund one person who they know for many years, ideally, then seeing that person come back healed, so now the entire community is in, kind of in the know of the potential of ayahuasca, and that's kind of how viral effects could kick off, but also this could help us become more self-sustainable, because obviously we can't fund every single veteran in the U.S. Moreover, it's actually not the goal. I think it's erroneous to think that every veteran should do ayahuasca. Rather, we want to help, and this very local neighborhood-centric approach could help with that and help our message go out in the world beyond the, the veteran community. Yeah, and, and like Yuri said, this is one tool. I would never say every veteran should take this. It's on a very, not everybody, sh every person should take it. I, I think that's a bad approach to it. We're just saying, and you mentioned it yourself, if any other thing had this much anecdotal evidence around it, it would have been studied long ago. Just like any sort of scientist would just be like, oh, this seems to be something here. Let me study it. But it's because of the political blockades around it that it's been limited but just by pushing this it will open the doors to other things and each psychedelic has its own sort of profile so maybe psilocybin or maybe mdma works better for somebody else or even just extending it to other therapies we're trying to just build this whole network of potential therapies because the va the veterans affairs department 
has less than a one-third success rate. And back on the SSRIs, if you read Michael Pollan's book, he notes that a lot of them are not even more successful than a placebo. Right. So these are like drugs that they actively prescribe. And then you not even to go into the whole opioid sort of crisis where there's also been psychedelics that have really shown tremendous ability to counter addiction in people. So, I mean, and like I mentioned earlier, just the understanding that we could potentially learn about the brain, even if it's not a direct therapeutical application is, is tremendous. Uh, so uh, just opening this opens a lot of doors. Yeah. And uh, to add on top of it is also, I don't have a personal connection to the military. Like I was like thinking, okay, why am I doing this? And the reason is uh, why I'm uh, working on this is because ayahuasca really awakens and uh, both men and women, what's called a uh, warrior archetype. It's a big part of the ayahuasca experience, is experiencing this archetype that we all have as human beings in terms of how to face uh, reality with dignity and how to stand tall and strong, kind of be a good person, really. And uh, veterans, people who go into the army, like they kind of chase that archetype, but then they come in often maybe into a military uh, situation where it's not really what they were chasing, but then they are stuck and they come back all chewed up. And ayahuasca could become that method to actually explore deeper and manifest that warrior archetype and take it further in the level of a community of a country. Because when, if not now, that's what our society needs it, like more like more warriors, true warriors in the most noble sense of it. Because like there's almost like this like too much of a divide there is the liberals who kind of despise everything that is related to war and military, and then military that despises the liberals because it's too soft. And, and this divide is so artificial. And I think ayahuasca being not only a medicine, but also a powerful teacher, that's the best way to kind of bridge that divide, not only medically, but politically and socially and culturally. Also, like I'm from Ukraine originally, and uh, I hope to maybe one day help produce a documentary about what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, taking veterans from those two sides of the conflict and taking them to retreat to prove people who are fighting against each other and have them go through this ceremonial experience. And let's see what happens in the end. Will they still be enemies? Well, looking forward to something like that. Yeah. You brought it, just real quick, you brought it up earlier. Even though our focus is military focus, this relates to everybody. You know, a huge percentage of the population suffers from anxiety and depression. Making this a military issue, one, it's it's my community, and obviously I want to help, you know, my brothers and sisters in there, but it really is for the rest of the community a foot in the door. In my mind, like this is if you make it a veteran issue, that's the the fastest, best way to get this push forward. Um, and then that's a foot in the door. That helps everybody. So it's not just a veteran issue, it's everybody's issue. This I just really believe is one of the better ways to pursue it. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Appreciate the effort here. I mean, it sounds like Heroic Hearts, noble mission, noble cause. You guys are really just changing culture, I think is the, the core drive here. Opening people's minds and helping people actually access tools and allow people to do research here. Appreciate the time, Jesse, Yuri. Uh, really a wonderful discussion. Hope that our community can get involved and I think be part of the dialogue. I think at the end of the day, we need to bring this conversation out of the taboo and this and the mystic into something that's actually discussed openly and measured and, and quantified or qualitatively or, or, or quantitatively, but measured and discussed. I think there's some clear value here to be shared with the world. So thanks so much for your time. Thank, Thank you. you. I know a lot of you guys have been writing in at podcast.human.com 
for different questions or topics or subjects that you'd like myself and our research lead, Dr. Brianna Subs, to cover. So let's actually make a Q&A special episode to answer any and all of your questions relating to our own personal performance protocols, our research and backgrounds as biohackers and scientists and business people to, you know, what's going on at Human? You know, what products are we working on? What R&D are we working on? What customers? What are the feedback from the Keto Nester? Happy to address any and all questions. So shoot us an email at podcast@human.com, And we'll, once we have a big bank of questions, we'll do a special episode. As always, please subscribe for future episodes of the Human Enhancement Podcast. Give us a five-star review on iTunes and send a screenshot to podcast@human.com, and we'll send you a free Sprint Mini, our acute focus nootropic. Thanks so much and see you next time.